0: Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thanks so much for tuning in. Now, you know what I'm going to say, we've got a lot to cram in, in our time together. In a minute, um, I'm going to be in a discussion with the uh, Shadow Cabinet member, Nick Thomas-Simmons, who's got a book out, I was going to say a new book, It's it's a reissue with a new introduction from Nick and from Keir Starmer on Clem Attlee. And of course it's fascinating and uh, I was going to say an act of uh, mischievous provocation to put out a biography of Clem Attlee on the eve of an election where many think Labour are going to win. And as I've got a book out at the moment on turning points in modern Britain, which begins in 1945, I thought it'd be interesting to have a conversation with Nick about Attlee. He now has, as part of his new brief in the Shadow Cabinet, the Brexit remit. Um, He will be the one responsible for negotiating, in inverted commas, a better Brexit, and ask him about that, and Keir Starmer, and so on, so... We'll be hearing that discussion in a moment. Before that, uh, and oh yeah, a few of your questions as well. Probably not as many as usual because we're going to focus on this conversation. But you know, there's going to be a lot of time in the next few weeks to get through, and they've been fantastic and really interesting. Um, but we'll get to a few of those after our conversation. Before all of that, a couple of notices. For Patreon subscribers, you will now have your bonus podcast for September. It's a new series on political rivalries, as suggested by a member of the Rock and Roll Politics Cooperative, Stuart Grant. And he came up with this idea. I bumped into him at King's Place. Stuart very kindly came to King's Place and bought the book. And um, I said I've had to do some research Really, kind of go back and read about Gladstone and Disraeli from a various. It was deeply fulfilling. So, thank you, Stuart. From Michael Foote's brilliant essay on Disraeli, Robert Blake's fantastic biography of Disraeli that Foot challenged, and Jenkins' biography of Gladstone, but others too. And you know, they were also prolific themselves. Gladstone and Disraeli, anyway that's on there and there'll be another one uh, next month as well on political rivalries. So do subscribe to Patreon. There's now a library of bonus uh, podcasts and some live shows as well. Um, so yeah, that's that. And uh, talking of live shows, the next one will be at King's Place on Monday, October the 23rd, after the party conferences and after the by-elections. And there's a question about those by-elections they can be overstated the significance of by-elections but not these ones and anyway we'll be gathering together for uh that post-mortem and and, and assessing the mood i also want to reflect a bit on what is the center ground not a bit delving deep um because as you know you might have heard there are other podcasts around which claim to be Bicentrist centrist dads for centrist dads and you know keir says we're back on the center ground tony blair says oh yeah labor are back on so what does it all mean that'll be kind of probably in the second half of king's place once we've delved deep about where we are after the last few weeks and by the way the last few days you know god does it change all the time hs2 only i tweeted this only in the UK can we end up possibly with a high-speed railway, which is slower to get to central London than the old lines? Uh, It's, you know, by the time this podcast is out, perhaps uh, Sunak would have made the announcement. I don't know when it's going to come. But he obviously aches to stop it. I mean, He's, he's a figure of treasury orthodoxy. The treasury were always against it. The treasury are always against infrastructure projects. Um, so that's happened. Uh, yeah. And also that uh, fascinating statement on Sunak's uh, moves vis-a-vis net zero. Um, I mean, there could be podcasts on each of those alone. But next week the Tory conference would have got underway. And we can delve uh, deep with all of that. And then as St. King's Place, we're going to make sense of the party conferences, the by-elections, where we are. And then I'm going to do a bit on the, or a lot on the centre ground. Anyway, now for the main part of the podcast, which is a conversation with Nick Thomas-Simmons. Now he was in the uh, part of the reshuffle and is now has the title of shadow minister without portfolio. And uh, Peter Mandelson also had that title. And Peter Mandelson uh, told Nick, uh, I called it shadow minister for every single department. Anyway, he's been given a very specific brief, but he is the frontbencher with a deeper sense of the past. Uh, If you remember, he wrote a Great biography of Harold Wilson, who always merits revisiting given that he was sort of completely um written out of history, really, in a kind of bizarre way. And he's now returned to a book he wrote earlier on Clem Attlee. And so it's got an introduction by him, a revised introduction, which is very interesting about where he places Attlee. It's by no means a hagiography. And Keir Starmer writes as well on his take on Attlee and what he learns from Attlee. So, uh, with that in mind, and with my book, which begins on 1945, in mind, here is the conversation with Nick Thomas Simmons on Clem Attlee, Brexit, and Keir Starmer. Nick Thomas-Simmons, thanks so much for coming in to discuss your new book. Well, it's a new book on one level, isn't it? You (laughs) wrote it some time ago, but you're publishing it again. It's got a new introduction from you, a new introduction from Keir Starmer, which raises the obvious question. Presumably, the implication is labor on the edge of power once again, and there are lessons from the Attlee period in power. I see you're nodding your head, so let's get straight to it. What do you think broadly the lessons are for Labour
1: now, as it contemplates a return to government? Firstly, it's great to join you, uh, Steve, on the podcast, and I do think this is an important moment to learn from Clem Attlee, and that what was a great reforming Labour government from 1945 to 1951. Clearly, we take nothing for granted in the shadow camera. We will fight for every vote over however many months are left before the election. But clearly, this is also a moment when we do need to look to the past for those lessons. And I think two things immediately strike me about Clem Attlee's uh, Labour government. Firstly, the extraordinary constructive Achievement of that government, whether it is in domestic policy in terms of they built the welfare state, the rebuilding of industry through, of course, the the public ownership that brought in the investment, save those industries after the war, the national health service, the town and country planning, All these great uh, domestic reforms, but also in foreign policy too, of course, the foundation of NATO, you think the uh, decolonization agenda, particularly uh, in India. These are all monumental achievements. But at the same time, and this is a question that I I pose in the book, I, I am an unashamed fan of Attlee, i think if we were looking at the the league table very flawed though they are of labor <laughs> prime ministers <laughs> yes. i'd have him uh, at the very top but nonetheless we do have to ask ourselves the question why it is that with with that constructive record that great record why is it that 6 years just over 6 years later labor is out of power and not to come back For 13 years. And I think that's significant too.
0: Yeah. Well, there's a lot to explore in that. Let us begin with this. Some listening will think, well, yes, it was a radical reforming government, which deserves your uh, putting Attlee at the top of the relatively few (laughs) Labour prime ministers. Um, And they would then say, but hold on a minute. Uh, The Labour programme now is far more cautious and incremental there is not an equivalent to the public ownership uh, proposition or the, well, I suppose National Health Service was a kind of public ownership, but it was a creation from nothing. And the house building program was astonishingly ambitious, et cetera, et cetera.
1: Um, can you point to an equivalent now? Well, well, I can. And I, I, do, I do challenge this thesis because Keir Starmer set out the five missions for the next Labour government. The first of which is a growth mission, about the fastest sustained growth in the G7. The second around uh, renewables, the green transition, clean energy by 2030. Then the tearing down of barriers to opportunity in education, whether it is in health, building the health service of the future, or indeed in terms of crime and the halving of violent crime over a 10-year period. And I would say that if those five missions are to be achieved, then it would be transformational for our society. The means aren't clear, are they? I mean, the means, for example,
0: towards public ownership in uh, after the 45 landslide uh, were debated internally, but there were quite a few options as to how you do it. Um, I, I don't see the how question being at all clear in a similar way now. We'll then move on to Atley, but 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 just as the context of the publication is the possibility of a Labour Well, there government.
1: are there are and, and and clearly clearly we will continue to set those things out over the months now before the general election. But just to give give an example, let's let's take uh, healthcare uh, as an example. Now it's pretty clear the National Health Service needs more staff. Now we've been setting out. In that area, for example, that we will raise money from changing the so called non DOM tax status, whereby people are able to pay this very limited amount of tax rather than tax on all the assets and income around the world. We'll change that on a simple principle that people who live here should pay their taxes here. And part of that money will go to what will be one of the largest recruitment drives in NHS history. Let's take the education example where we've set out our plans for school breakfast clubs, mental health support uh, for children that could be transformational as well. So those five missions are the guiding structural points for the next Labour government. But we are setting out how they're going to be achieved too. Let's move on to Attlee himself.
0: Uh, Now, Keir Starmer is a friend of yours, indeed. In his introduction to the book, he he describes the two of you as good friends. Do you see, and some people have said this, you know, forget about the exuberance of Blair and the charisma of Johnson and so on, that Keir Starmer has some similarities to the character
1: of Clare Matley. Now, you've known Keir Starmer for years and years. Do you see some? They both have, in my view, the same seriousness of purpose. Uh, They both as well, I would suggest. Uh, have this sense of the efficient dispatch of business. If you look at Clem Attlee's uh, Labour cabinets, he expected punctuality. And I'm sure I can break shadow cabinet confidentiality enough to say that Keir Starmer likes punctuality. He likes people actually in the room as a respect to other colleagues. Yeah, I'm told he gets quite cross if shadow uh, cabinet members turn up late. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> he that, that efficient dispatch of business, I think you could identify very clearly with both of them. And they're both as well problem solvers. They're both people who see injustice, who see issues, and want to find practical solutions to deal with them. So I do think there are points of comparison.
0: What is so glorious about your book is that to me anyway, and I think to you as you began, and maybe even as you've ended your exploration of Attlee, he, he is one of the mystery figures in British politics. I mean, we've talked briefly already about some of the changes he led with that 45 government. Uh, and it's not just about his personality. Eve, I've read, like you obviously have, his uh, autobiography, which he wrote <laughs> in the mid-50s. And there's not even an attempt at a celebration of those changes. Some of them get a paragraph, you know, that the rest of us have been analysing for decades. So explain the mystery. Was he an administrator who never felt passionate about these things? Did he retrospectively, when he was tired, not feel passionately about them?
1: What was he? What, What drove him? Two things I think really do shape Clem Attlee, uh, the man. I think the first is this profound sense of duty. Remember, he was Major Attlee in World War I. He was one of the last on the beaches in Gallipoli. He he was actually injured when he served in what was then called Mesopotamia. And he always had that, that sense of public duty, but he was allied to this real passion to deal with social injustice. And it came about because remember he came from uh, a pretty wealthy background, yeah. went to Haleybury, of course, but just before World War 1 he was carrying out what would be described as social work really yeah. in the east end of London. And he drew this conclusion that Private charity would never be enough to transform the lives of those who lived in poverty. You needed a government to do it systemically. And I think those two things really do shape him. But remember, his personality was very, very understated. Claire Matley, I mean, the the modern media would have been completely alien to <laughs> Clematley. Yeah. The the old the old ticker tape machine which his which in those days used to give you, I suppose our equivalent of breaking news. Yeah. And his press secretary, Francis Williams, had to persuade him to even have such a thing in number 10. And in the end, he could only be persuaded by saying, look, you can keep an eye on the Middlesex cricket scores Clint, yeah, if you actually have yeah, the machine.
0: Yeah. In a way, I, is there a parallel with Keir Steinberg? I get the impression, highly unusual for a modern leader, that he's not that bothered by the media. I'm sure it gets to him when he thinks they're being unfair. But someone told me he doesn't get too worked up about the modern media.
1: I, I, Keir Simon, I've known him for, for a long time, is someone who is very passionate, 100% committed about bringing about change. I don't think Keir spends time worrying about what this person or that person says about him. I think he's got this real steely determination about what he does. Back to
0: Attlee. Um you're, you're critical, in fact, in your introduction, uh, the latest one, you say you were criticized for this in making your assessment. Mm. You, you, I think you say that in some areas, Atlee moved almost too fast, including India, mm. uh, where you think a, a, a longer phase was required. And again, this is so interesting, isn't it? Because he doesn't come across as an impatient figure racing towards various policy objectives. But there we have it with uh, India, with an NHS within three years, with et cetera, et cetera. Um, Do do you think he, they, uh, because as you write, some people think, it was Herbert Morrison who drove a lot of, certainly, the domestic reforms. Do,
1: do you think they moved too quickly in, in a bizarre way? In, I think that applies. Now, let's come back to the India point a yeah, moment because yeah. I think that does stand as a quite important aspect of him to look at. In terms of the domestic program, actually, I think the pace of change they use in my view, was probably spot on domestically. I think if you look at the period between 1945 and 1948, you will rarely find another three-year period in the last century in peacetime that has that level of domestic transformation. The credit Herbert Morrison most certainly deserves is is firstly because the nationalisation models are essentially his. They're based on the London transport pasture board of the 1930s, the structure is very much Morrisonian, this idea of it's essentially arm's length boards to which you appoint people that that run these these various nationalized industries but secondly because he was in effect the overlord of the domestic front so the the way that legislation for example goes through parliament the way he's able to prioritize what should move quickly what should move more slowly this is all morrison and i think he deserves a, a great deal of credit for it the one the one point I have made around India and I, and I don't I don't underestimate for a moment how difficult that yeah, was yeah. to do it, it it's something monumental and Attlee himself when later interviewed in the later part of his life said that he thought that was the one thing that that he was likely to be remembered for the critique i was making was around what was essentially a chaotic situation when India became independent, the partition in particular, and what happened in terms of the, the loss of life into which side of the partition borders particular villages uh, ended up. And it was that bit that, uh, you know, when I wrote the book 14, 15 years ago now, concerned me when I, yeah. when I looked at it. I and mean, I think Atlee's essential view after he, because remember he changed the viceroy to to Mountbatten. I think Attlee's essential view, which was very similar to his view on the NHS, was you had to just set the deadline. I, I understand that. My my critique was around where you had the borders and what happened in terms of the human cost of it. Yeah,
0: the consequences of that. One of the things that fascinates me about the forty-five government is something that. Um, I know we're, probably promise you, we're focusing on your, but I'm just going to mention mine purely in this context. I've got this book out at the moment about turning points, and there are clearly two elections where Britain did turn, 45 and 79. How much was it, do you think, sort of underlying forces? It's not, it's a cliche to talk about the war and people's expectations after the war, but we had the Beveridge Report in 42. We had a Tory party during that period, that wing of the coalition having to at least grudgingly accept a lot of the beverage report. So, they were moving towards a more statist position before the 45 election. We had the Butler Education Act, uh, not implemented but passed. Um, How much was there a sea change underneath Attlee and his party that partly explains it? Or do you attribute
1: 95% of it to the will of Attlee and that government? As with everything in politics, it's a combination, isn't it? And I'll come because Attlee, I think, does make one in particular decisive contribution in the 1945 campaign. But there is no doubt that the structural forces that were in place play a a huge part because because had it been a personal popularity contest, then Churchill was clearly very popular because he was regarded as a person, of course, with his great contribution to winning World War II. But there were a number of things. There was a sense that if we could come together in this way and do it in wartime, why can't we build the peace Mm. in the same Mm. way? You've mentioned the Beverage Report, of course, which was very important in terms of the foundation of the, the welfare state. And in World War II, Churchill was a bit ambivalent, frankly, about it. He made this yeah. comment about a dangerous optimism that was building up as to what might come mm. in the post-war mm. period. You've also got to remember the, the, the emergency medical services, for example, that was happening in, in World War yeah. II as well, which is another pointer towards the National Health Service. But the other thing it did, which I think is is often missed, is that although this was, and it certainly was a turning point uh, in terms of the first chapter. You got your excellent book, uh, Steve. But these were ministers who'd already been in government. Herbert Morrison was very well known. Remember, he was the home secretary. So he was the one in the war who where there were air raids and terrible things happening, he was the one who would visit. He was known uh, to the populace. There was Attlee, of course, who wasn't that well known, but nonetheless had been the deputy prime minister since 1942, had been obviously in the war cabinet before that. So it wasn't the case, although Churchill did try it during the campaign, to say there was some sort of unfitness about Labour to govern, because they had governed. However, and this is where I do come to Attlee's contribution, uh, Churchill made this... What is just an extraordinarily ill-judged party political broadcast about saying that,
0: and, saying a yeah.
1: socialist government would need some sort of Gestapo, even if humanely directed in the first instance, which was, I mean, it's an it was an awful thing to say. But particularly these were people he'd served with in the coalition who'd played a part in winning the war. But Attlee's response to him was magisterial, yes, magisterial, and he made this point as well about how you would. You, know, you listened to that transition between Churchill the great war leader and now what he descended to with yeah. that I attack. think it
0: was then also it's again it's part of the mystery as i find he seized the term freedom, didn't he? he did. Which was a very—it's a very potent term in British politics. Margaret Thatcher seized it in seventy-nine, but he seized it then and, and made a whole argument that Labour stood for freedom. And again, this kind of fascinates me because he's not known as a communicator, and yet there, at a crucial moment, um, he found the language to absolutely overwhelm
1: the great orator, Churchill. He did. And this, you see, this this is what Attlee had to say about freedom. He wanted to make Britain a place where men and women can live finely and happily, free citizens of a great country. Yeah. And he wasn't afraid to go into that territory where, in British politics generally, the right has been able to seize that word freedom, yes. but Clem Attlee most certainly owned it yeah. in 1945. yeah. So he... He wasn't
0: wholly indifferent to framing arguments and, and communicating them, was he?
1: It's another layer of... No, and it's fascinating because, of course, he he did end up having something of a dispute with an Bevan over this, over the launching of the National Health Service, where Attlee tended to take the view that if you were doing something very radical, there was no particular harm in expressing it in a moderate way. And the argument he had with an iron Bevan in July 1948 was that Attlee wanted to talk a bit about some other foundation stone to the NHS, for example, mm. the new liberal government mm. in the very early part of the century, Whereas an Iron Bevan thought that g- given this huge fight I've had with the British Medical Association, the huge battles I've had, the credit, surely, an Iron Bevan said, should go to this Labour government. But it's an, in- it's an interesting insight, that, because it shows that Attlee was someone, for all the fact that he used few words, for all the fact he didn't like the whole concept of sort of party political broadcast type stuff, as we'd call them later, he nonetheless did consider very carefully how best to frame an argument to the public.
0: Yeah. Now, let's go to the point you raised at the beginning, where I think you're absolutely right to analyze this, because they were gone by 51. And you are critical of this, I think, on several levels. First of all, did he need to call an election when he did lose it? And, and, and why? I mean, I think it was partly they were. It's easy to forget now when politicians are so young. They were quite old and tired, and that was clearly a factor in the fall. Uh, but what, what's your wider sense of how how he blew it in the end? This landslide in
1: forty five out for thirteen years by fifty one. Yeah, and there's a number of levels to this. I think. I think firstly, it isn't just about the October nineteen fifty one election. It was all. It was also a mistake, in my view, to hold an election in February of 1950. Partly under huge pressure from the Chancellor Stafford Cripps, who, who remarkably, was so high-minded he didn't like the idea of a budget where electoral considerations were in his head. No, especially if you look at the Tory Our chancellors, times change. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. absolutely, and and you you end up having this election where. You've got all these great achievements, but you're trying to hold an election in the depths of winter in 1950. And of course, the majority comes down to five. That's the first timing problem. The second problem is that October 1951 election, there was no need to hold an election at that point. And indeed... Even if he'd waited into the spring of 1952, the economic upswing that came in 1952 would have been credited to them, not to the incoming conservatives. But you've also got to remember as well that in a sense, uh, there was was also a bit of bad luck by the way, because Labour's 1951 number of votes is still the highest, but unfortunately they piled them up in the wrong places. But the other point to make is that there was this split that had come in the government between... On the one hand, an Iron Bevan, Harold Wilson, John Freeman. Uh, and ostensibly it was about charging for teeth and spectacles in the NHS. But it was it was deeper than that. It yeah. was also about this large defense program,
0: yeah.
1: which iron Bevan thought represented a move by America from things like martial aid, which they were fully in favor of, to a more militarist kind of uh, militarist type stance. So, you, you have that split that's happening, that sense of decay in the government. But there's also as well a sense that, and it was there was a what they called a symposium in Dorking in June of 1950, where there was this split between Herbert Morrison on the one side who thought that Labour had achieved so much, but now they needed to shift focus. They needed to shift focus even further from the wartime controls. Towards an agenda where you were promoting individual consumer affluence, and those on the other side of the argument, people like uh, An Iron Bevan and others, who thought that you had to drive further forward with the nationalisation programme, and that that division almost almost. I would argue, and Iron Bevan was also pragmatic, but it's almost an argument between a, a pragmatism, a desire to win power, versus a more ideological mm, stance, mm. which you could argue is a lot more common uh, in Labour history. Yes, but that that split as well is very present in that government. Which, by then, by the way, someone like let's just take Clem Attlee. Clem Attlee has been in power personally for eleven years by this point. So that sense that, you know, Ernest Bevin, of course, died. Morrison had previously been ill it did take a physical toll too
0: yeah no there's no question i mean illness is a running theme actually throughout the uh, the government it is interesting though that I mean, managing people in the labor party has always been quite a challenge i mean it drove wilson crazy managing his cabinets and shadow cabinets and i'm sure Keir starmer would concur if he's listening that it's a challenge <laughs> to put it politely atley was brilliant at first wasn't he what well, he was dealing with these Big personalities, some of whom wanted him not even to lead the party into the election. One wrote to him; was it Lasky wrote to him, say, you should go before the election? Anyway, he dealt with it all brilliantly. But by the end, it seemed to me he 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 couldn't handle. He misread an Iron Bevan and, and 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 the degree to which Gatesgill antagonised,
1: and and, and 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 there was a sense that he lost that control. Certainly over the I think the last eighteen months. I mean, the, yeah. the early part is a. Uh- is a master class. masterclass. I masterclass. Mean, in mean, the aforementioned Harold Lasky, who wrote the the letter asking him to stand down, he wrote magisterially <laughs> back that a period of silence from you would be most welcome. <laughs> and and of course, you have to remember too, the these giant figures in that government, they, they didn't particularly like each other. And no. there's there's the great there's the great story, you know, the tea room story about Ernest Bevin. Uh, and there's some debate about who it's talking about, but I'm pretty sure it's an Iron Bevan, where it said to Ernie Bevin that Iron Bevan is his own worst enemy. And Ernie Bevin said, Not while I'm alive, he ain't.
0: <laughs> <laughs> There are these <laughs>
1: glorious quotes out there which
0: convey the
1: tensions. It's incredible. But, but, <laughs> but, but the, later, the later part, I think a number of different things happen. I think if you look at the, the two, Bevan and Gateskill, where Gateskill ends up succeeding Cripps as the Chancellor. And Aaron Bevan felt he'd been passed over for pr- promotion, pr- promotion to be colonial secretary. He felt he'd been passed over to be the chancellor. And he ended up with this move to the Ministry of Labor, briefly in the late part of the government, which never really suited him and which he didn't feel was a recognition of all that he'd, he'd achieved in the, in the health job. Uh, I also think that, in fairness to Attlee, when you had that crisis in early 1951, people would go into his bedside. You know, Morrison, who was chairing cabinet, and Morrison was chairing cabinet in Attlee's absence, Uh, there would be more than one cabinet meeting in a day, so they could go to Attlee's bedside. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so in fairness to him, to try to deal with Harold Wilson on the one hand and Iron yeah. Bevan on the other, yeah. Hugh Gateskill on the other, whilst in a hospital bed would always have been a bit of a challenge. Quite
0: a, quite a challenge. <laughs> now, talking about uh, challenges, if if we can move forward, it, it's, it's, it's brilliant that if Labour win, you're going to be in this government because you will have context, you'll be able to see the parallels and indeed the warnings and all the rest of it, the challenges, uh, which is absolutely an essential ingredient. Um, and you will yourself be having a challenge challenging brief. You're you're now in the shadow cabinet minister without portfolio title, but with a specific set of responsibilities, including Brexit, constitutional reform, and so on. Given that there's been quite a lot about labor and Brexit in recent days, Keir Starmer has talked about it really more expansively than ever uh, he has done since Brexit happened. What is your thinking about what that government can do, what you personally will be involved in, um, in making sense of what Labour call a better Brexit.
1: Yes, and we've seen as well Keir Starmer out in The Hague, in Montreal, obviously. Why is he talking about it more, by the way? Because some, some
0: I've heard some Tory strategists say it's a mistake. You know, the, the silence was a
1: much more effective. But what, what's the thinking about talking about it? Well two things I think firstly Kier is rebuilding the UK's reputation on the international stage which has been incredibly damaged by the conservative government and to see him whether it's at the Hague whether it's in Montreal whether it's meeting president Macron I think that's very important but secondly it's about our national interest and putting our national interest first and we've been talking about different Aspects of how we want that, that reset that improved relationship. Just, just take one example. The start of Keir Starmer's uh talk was at The Hague, where mm. he was speaking to uh, speaking at Europol, Europol being the one of the most important tools for us in law enforcement. The, the deal we currently have that uh, Frost and Johnson negotiated, has us essentially with a relationship to that body, rather like the United States, which is clearly very distant, not uh, one I think that we would aspire to. And just look at some practical examples. We can't share data in real time. If you want to catch People smugglers, indeed other organised criminals, that's a facility that's in our national interest to have. Mm. Secondly, if you want to tackle, whether it's terrorism, again, whether it's immigration crime, uh, fraud across borders, other serious and organised crime... We, don't. we will create a cross-border police unit, but we want the officers to be leading investigations in Europol. That is a closer relationship with law enforcement that is in our national interest to do. And I think setting that out is very important. Some EU specialists based here
0: have said uh, Labour are killing themselves if they think, uh, A, the EU have got their mind on other things now. Britain has gone and that it's not a priority. Uh, B... They're not in the mood to give give us very much. And now you have lots of conversations. Do you sense they are in the mood to give us? I know you don't want the single market or the customs union in a first term of Labour government, but do you think that view is wrong? Um, and that you're not being not you personally, but that the, the the leadership is not being naive in expecting progress to be made on things like trade and other things because they've just been giving it stuff and they're not
1: in that kind of mood anymore. Well, I think on the first point, yes, we've ruled out single market customs in returning to freedom of movement. Secondly, this isn't about giving things. I think that's completely the wrong Mm. characterization. What this is about is mutual interest. It is about where there are areas that are in Britain's national interest for particular type of relationship, and where it's in the EU's interest as well. Now, we've seen an example, even in the past couple of years, with the war in Ukraine, just to give an example. Whether it is on the green transition, tackling this huge challenge presented by climate change, whether it's addressing poverty in the global South, whether it's in the area we discussed a moment or two ago around security, around law enforcement, whether it is too in the issue of trade, which obviously I've covered in in some depth over the past couple of years, it isn't in the interests of either side, To erect unnecessary trade barriers. It isn't just about that. Isn't about just damage to the UK. That's in terms of damage to all those businesses across the EU. It's about finding areas where mutual interest brings about. It's a strong mutual interest. The I wouldn't expect anything else other than very tough negotiations on either side with parties, whether it's the EU, the UK, or indeed any of the other negotiations you do around the world. People robustly standing up for the interests of whoever they represent, whether it's a country, whether it's the, uh, the EU in this case. But it is about where there are areas of mutual interest where both sides can benefit.
0: Let's uh, end where we began with uh Attlee and that cabinet. I think you know even the most ardent Tory would acknowledge that was a big cabinet even if they disagreed with things. And they had had the experience of course being on the whole most of them being part of a wartime coalition. Um, some say, oh yeah, compared to that, or indeed your your brilliant biography of Wilson, you know, huge figures around the cabinet table. Some say, compared to that, the current shadow cabinet are just not in the same league. But were they seen as, you know, not particularly substantial before they got into power and then they became kind of retrospectively legendary? Or <laughs> I don't want you to dismiss your colleagues in the shadow cabinet. When do people acquire bigness
1: um, as they did and Wilson's cabinets do now, nowadays? You only have to look at what some people within the Labour Party and outside said about Clem Attlee in the 1950s. Yeah, and it wasn't yeah. always very complimentary. And the, but the thing is, if you look at uh, Labour history, the current generation always say, They were giants in the previous generation, but not this one. Where it really comes from is it doesn't come from current commentary. You only really see the significance some years later and and often what happens with with prime ministers in particular too, but it applies more generally, their reputations tend to go down a bit when they, they leave office, when they leave the stage, but what happens is you later get a sense of perspective when you see their successes, when you see the judgments that they made on particular issues, given the test of time. So I, I tend not to take that sort of analysis uh, too seriously, because I think the ultimate judgment of substance in that way is something you can only make.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. I remember I was political editor of the New Statesman in the build-up to 97, Everyone was writing that shadow cabinet. It was only Blair and Brown, and the others were sort of. Um, and now people say the, the current shadow cabinet lacks the giants of Blunkett, Cook, etc. Et <laughs> so so it, it takes time, doesn't it, for views to shape? And you have had the time to reflect on At Lee, and it's it's brilliant. And thanks so much for coming in pleasure. and discussing it with us today. Absolute pleasure. Thank you, Steve. your favourite history nerds are back. Yes, we at We Are History have been trawling the history shelves of our local bookshops. Well... I have John. You mostly went round finding your books and moving them to the front of the displays. If I can find them, it's a bonus. We are ready to tell you all about what we've learned from the revolting French to some revolting women via some Brits abroad and a foul-mouthed Irishman. So download We Are History, our laughable attempt at a silly
1: history podcast.
0: With me, John O'Farrell, and me, Angela Barnes. Wherever you get your podcasts. So there we are. That was uh, Nick Thomas-Simmons on his uh, new or revised biography of Clem Attlee. Where will Starmer fit in in the pantheon of Labour leaders? It's too early to say, and it's too early really to make much sense of what form a Labour government would take if Starmer wins. But that depends on lots of other Factors now to your questions uh briefly, if it's okay with all of you. But remember, we've got lots of uh, time in the coming weeks. To I've got lots of brilliant questions I want to get to. But anyway, I thought in the context of what I've just said, actually, a really interesting email from Neil Sherlock. He, he's the uh, senior Lib Dem work with closely with many Lib Dem leaders. Will no doubt be at the Lib Dem conference uh, as this podcast goes out. Now, as you know, this podcast uh, during August uh, put out a few bonus specials. One was on the 1992 election. And I argued, actually, that for many reasons, this is not like 1992. But if Keir Starmer's office begins to worry that it could be like 1992, these worries have a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. Well, Neil offers even more forensic evidence about the contrast between now and 1992. Um... And, Neil, this is really interesting for those who think, oh, yeah, we dread it could be 1992. You know, when Thatcher fell, John Major came in, uh, everyone thought Neil Kinnock was going to win, and he didn't. And now we've got uh, Truss falling, Sunak in, and everyone thinks Keir Starmer's going to win, but will he? But this is the difference. In March, this is from Neil Sherlock, in March 1991, just over a year from the 1992 election, The range of the polls was Tories on 37 to 47%, Labour on 34 to 44%, and the Lib Dems on 9 to 19%. Now, that was the kind of range. Sometimes Labour were ahead, sometimes the Tories. And Neil says in the run up to the calling of the 1992 election, the Tories were pretty well as often as Labour ahead in the polls. In short, nothing like today. So I think that's such an interesting reminder. See, Labour at the moment are kind of 20 plus points ahead in the polls and have been really since the Liz Truss era. You remember Truss, you know, that uh, month in power? Uh, and, And Sunak, although briefly seemed to be undermining that lead, uh, it's now back to the trust era in scale. Um, and that was not the case in the build-up to 1992. So thank you, Neil, for clarifying that. Uh, now, Caroline Morgan, our Brussels correspondent, uh, accused ha- me in for a preview. We're going to look at King's Place, at the impact of these by-elections on the political mood. And I think they will have an in- a huge impact On the political mood uh, the psychological uh, self-confidence or not of the leaders how they are perceived how the parties are perceived in the build-up to the election so Caroline says would you have time to talk us rock and rollers through the three forthcoming by-elections Rutherglen, Tamworth and Mid-Bedfordshire How's it looking? What are the implications for the various parties? Have the Lib Dems been behaving badly in mid-beds? Are Labour on course to win all three? Are there any hidden issues, etc? And will it have any bearing on when Rishi Sunak will call the general election? Uh, Best wishes from Brussels. And uh, yeah, oh, Caroline says um, she might be able to make the Christmas uh, rock and roll politics show. Well, we'll, I'll I'll get in touch with you about that, uh, Caroline. Um, uh, But back to the um, uh, thrust of the question. First of all, on the timing of the general election, there's been a huge amount in recent days speculating that it could be much earlier than many assume. Uh, That it could be May, uh, perhaps even earlier than May. John Major, to go back to Neil Sherlock's email, uh went in April 1992 so that would be calling it pretty early next year and uh, another much talk about May I don't think that is likely if labor are still hugely ahead in the polls prime ministers always dare to hope that something will turn up and I think that will be the case with rishi sunak if however, the polls narrow dramatically, he will surely be tempted. And one of the things that could bring about a dramatic narrowing of the polls is if the Tories win mid-bed, mid-Bedfordshire, Nadine Doris' seat, remember her? Uh, God, these characters who have uh, erupted around our lives, you know, a year ago since Liz Truss, Nadine. Um, if the Tories could hold on to that because of a split vote, that will have some significance on the political mood, as Uxbridge did. Um, I've got a very good email from, I think, Stephen Townsley saying Uxbridge must be one of the most consequential by-elections of recent times, uh, given it's changed Sunak's approach to net zero. Um, so I'm told uh, it's Labour that's on course to win mid-beds, or that they are more confident that they can win it than the Lib Dems, but it could be very close. Rather, Glenn, I uh, remember Labour held that, in, uh, or won it, in 2017, the general election. Um, And if they can't win it back now, uh, after the dramas with the SNP, there has been no revival in Scotland. I think it's the margin of the win that's important. If it's very, very close, Labour will still have some doubts about whether they're going to pick up many seats in Scotland. If they win by a significant majority they will become much more confident about doing well in the general election. Scotland is still on edge, really. It's not clear uh, about whether the Nicola Sturgeon drama, the Alex Salmond drama and all the rest of it, the degree to which the fall of big leaders, and whatever you think of those two, they were big leaders, undermines an idea, independence, or whether the idea survives the fall of those two leaders. We will begin to hear that answer in uh, Rutherglen. Tamworth, again, a bit like with mid beds, the circumstances are so wacky the resignation of Pincher, the Dickensian named Pincher. Um, and let's see if Labour were to win all three. We are then in, because they would all be gains, we are then in what sort of Neil Sherlock highlights as being very, very different terrain from 1992. And, uh, you know, they could be on course for something quite substantial in the general election. Uh, and it's only if that were to happen, and I don't know. I don't there's no point predicting by-elections, frankly. Uh, local polls in by-elections are unreliable as well. Um, I think they could go in all sorts of different ways. But to be honest, that's why you should get to King's Place in uh, on October the 23rd, because we'll have had them all by then. They're not all on the same day, I think. Uh, Caroline, thank you very much from uh, Brussels. Now, Matthew Ryder uh, writes from uh, Cambridge, uh, Huntington in Cambridgeshire. Was was that John Major's seat, uh, Matthew? Anyway, I've been a regular listener of Rock and Roll Politics after discovering the podcast in the summer of 2022. Thank you for helping the cooperative to make more sense of our political system. I've worked in the justice system for many years and wondered if I could be considered for the role of justice advisor to the cooperative. You sure can, Matthew, and we need plenty of advice on that front. So does the government, incidentally. Um, But via the podcast, we can advise the likes of Suella Braverman and and others. Um, Matthew says, I'm wondering if Britain's future relationship with the European Union will emerge as a key theme in the run-up to the next election, whilst the Brexit-supporting Conservatives and their allies in the media appear to have marginalised supporters of closer ties with the EU in recent years. I'm starting to wonder if the tide is turning. I was interested to read that this week Keir Starmer, it would be last week by the time you hear this, has started to spell out his vision of the UK's future relationship. Could this be the start of the fight back against Brexit? does this possibly indicate that Labour is growing more confident in setting out a more distinctive policy? Where might this lead? Well, you heard Nick Thomas-Simmons on it a bit, uh, Matthew, Um, and uh, the answer is, I think, complicated uh, Labour and Brexit. I think they won't uh, utter a word if the focus groups don't give them permission to do so, so there must be some indication that Brexiteers and focus groups are recognising that the Brexit deal negotiated by Johnson and Lord Frosty Frost was a disaster. And that gives a bit of space for Keir Starmer to sort talk about a better Brexit. I also think these by-elections are a factor... Uh in him doing so. Uh in Scotland, in Rutherglen, he is being attacked from the pro-European left by the SNP. That's how they're pitching their message in Rutherglen. And in the so-called parts of the Blue Wall, similarly, um, well, not as mid-beds in the Blue Wall. I don't, you know, these terms are so imprecise. Um but so I think there are sort of tactical reasons why he's doing it. But it's there comes a point where silence on this huge issue becomes counterproductive and absurd. And I think we've reached that point. But wasn't it interesting that when um, Starmer was... I think he's been all over the place, but I think it was when he was in Canada um, and talked about alignment in terms of regulatory standards and other, uh, you know, vis-a-vis food, medicine, so. Uh, All hell broke loose. You know, Michael Gove was out the newspapers screaming. Um, He he said it many times before. So has Boris Johnson in his time. Um, And so has Michael Gove, actually. You know, they'd be saying, if anything, we'll, we'll aim for even higher standards. And it just shows that there is still a frenzy around this issue. But it's a frenzy without a cause. You know, no one on the Brexit side, not even Lord Frosty Frost, is going around saying it's all a triumph. I mean, they all blame everyone else. But there is space, I think, to put this case Now, they've ruled out Labour going into the single market, but I suspect in the back of their minds, they will think, I don't know this, and they certainly won't say it, uh, that if they get a second term with a decent majority, they might move in that direction. They might have to, because how are they going to get this growth? How are they going to get the economy to grow without much closer ties with this huge single market on our doorstep? It is so Perverse what's happening um, now. I've got some brilliant questions from you know a whole range of people, um, but do you mind if um, we stop there because we've crammed in quite a lot. Uh, and I'll read more out uh, next time we get together in the podcast uh, because they are so good. And some of them will still apply when the next podcast goes out. And meantime, keep keep them coming in. Um, I'll tell you who there's some great ones from uh, Paul Cooper, uh, Mark Donohue, um who else? Sean Farrell. I mentioned Stephen Townsley's one. Uh, Mark Rogers. Yeah, I can go on and on. In fact, Yatish... Uh, yeah, I'm going to mention this, uh, Yatish. Uh narandos has written in i'm so excited by this uh, uh high sleep normally like others i would say that i was baking running or knitting while listening to your podcast actually i was listening to your podcast while traveling to an open day for new students at my old school how surprising then that the person i was listening to would show up on the wall behind me as an alumni yeah oh, so this was your old school as well uh Yatish. christ college yeah in north london Now, it sounds like a very posh school, and, you know, it it was a state, uh, comprehensive. Um, But I was interested, I was thrilled to be up there. But look at some of the other people who went to our school. Charles Satchy, yeah, well, you know. uh, I did know about Lord Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. um, Oh, Lord Young. Do you remember Lord Young? Thatcher used to say, he gives me solutions when others give me problems. They were all at this school. Uh, Yatish asked for my uh, uh, memories, uh, favourite, biggest memory from the school. Well, I'll tell you this, and I'll end on this, and it shows the power of teaching. You know how we in the Rock and Roll Politics Cooperative often reflect on the importance of political leaders being a teacher. And uh, this school, uh, the ones that I have the best memory of were the sort of ones who could kind of cast a spell in the lesson – Uh, I've mentioned, I think, uh, history teacher Glenn Petrie. His son, Steve Petrie, listens to this podcast. And he could cast a spell rather like the historian AJP Taylor. He could come in and unscripted, deliver a kind of mesmerizing 40 minutes on a bit of history. And there was an English teacher called Colin Dudley who was very glamorous and uh, used to take us up to Stratford for Shakespeare plays, knew some of the actors and so on. And he brought to life Shakespeare for me. Um, we never studied novels at Christ College when I was there. And it's, it, I kind of learned there the importance of teaching. And then you apply it to some of the big politicians who could teach. Um, we haven't got them at the moment, I think. Some might emerge in the coming uh, years. But it's so important. So that's my memory. Anyway, what a nice kind of light, self-indulgent ending. But thank you very much. By the way, someone else who went there was John Sopel. Ruber has it. He does a podcast. He was the year above me. And then we uh, went to journalism, uh, a post-grad journalism course we did together and have always been in touch. We go, go back many, many years. But I gather his podcast you know, struggling along a bit. Anyway, look, um, thank you so much for uh, listening. Talking of which do leave a review if you don't mind. Uh, if you could, because that propels these things up the competitive charts. And yeah, uh, we're in the party conference season. So we need to get together again very soon to make sense of it all. And I'll read out some more questions. Thanks so much. Take care. Bye.